Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us for today's program. Today, I'm really honored and really thrilled to be joined by Margaret McMillan, professor at both University of Oxford and the University of Toronto, author of many, many books, uh, probably most famously Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World. Margaret, thank you for joining us here at War Room. It's lovely to be here. I want to just start by asking you how you came to write this book. What what inspired you to write? When did you begin writing the book, and what 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 made you think this was something you wanted to write? It became it somehow became an obsession. I mean, not in a bad way, but I got very interested in the subject. I think partly because I was interested in twentieth century history, but I was also teaching a lot of history. And every time I taught something to do with the 20th century, it seemed to me that the subject had been discussed, or quite often the subject had been discussed at the Paris Peace Conference, which was the big peace conference that ended the First World War. And so Indochina came up at the Paris Peace Conference, Russia came up at the Paris Peace Conference, the Middle East came up at the Paris Peace Conference, attempts to build a better world and set up a League of Nations came up at the Paris Peace Conference. And many of these were things we are still grappling with today. And I was also fascinated by the people who were there. I mean, it was a very rich cast of characters. I mean, this was a conference that lasted in its most intense moment for six months and had the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Britain, the Prime Minister of Italy, the Prime Minister of France, and a whole host of other dignitaries. Impossible to imagine such an event today. T.E. Lawrence comes through, the Emir Faisal, Ho Chi Minh. I mean, they're all, Wellington Coup, they're all there at one point or another. And there's a young American lawyer called John Foster Dulles who helps to write the the treaty with Germany. You know, so it was just one of those extraordinary events. And I thought, you know, someone should write a book on it because it's so fascinating. And then I thought, well, someone's probably written a book. And so I looked and somebody hadn't written a book on the whole. They'd written a book on things like Poland at the Peace Conference or Romania at the Peace Conference and so on. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll try. And then I thought, that's crazy. You know, who am I to try this massive subject? And so I just started collecting material. And every summer I'd go to a different archive and look at things. And I gradually started writing it. I think I started sometime at the end of the 1980s. And I moved rather slowly because there was no pressure. Nobody wanted to publish it. And I finally wrote about four chapters by the beginning of the 1990s. And I sent them to people with an outline, and I got a whole host of rejection letters. I still did have, you really? Oh yeah, I have a. Very, and did you keep them? You have. Oh them? yeah, I've got a very fat file. Um, Do you ever f- see any of those editors again and say no? You, but know, you had a chance at this book, and you you I'm, passed it. I I met one, and and we've since become friendly, and we we, <laughs> we avoid the subject. But um, I I have one from I I think it was it was a university press, quite a well well known one, which said we're very sorry, but you know we can't afford to publish a book that only a few people will read. Wow. I know. I, I, that yeah. one I treasure. So did you know when you wrote this book, what, what was your sense once you got it done and once you had a contract with it, did you have a sense that you had written something that was going to be read by more than just a few people? Or what, what did you think the book was going to be? I don't know. I mean, I wrote it because I, I just was fascinated by the subject. And once I got a contract, it was much easier because I had a deadline and I had a purpose. And I wrote it. And I No, I thought, you know, I, it would be nice if it got some reviews. 
and it would be nice if people noticed. And, and you know, I, I thought even, you know, quite often the New York Times and so on have small reviews. You know, they have two or three lines mm-hmm. about, you know, another book has come out. And I thought it'd be really nice to get one of those. And I thought, no, don't be silly. <laughs> and my book came out in England and I was hiking in the Rockies. And, and those days, you know, in the Rockies, you, there was no, no cell phone communication and you were miles from anything. And I remember sitting there thinking, I wonder if, you know, there'd been any reviews. And I came back into contact and a cousin of mine in England had phoned me, I think, and left a message saying, you've got to look at the review in the Financial Times. It's incredible. And I thought, Financial Times? You know, what are they doing reviewing my book? And it, I really was startled. And it got very good reviews. And I think it was partly timing because my book came out when that relatively peaceful period at the end of the Cold War was coming to an end. And Yugoslavia was falling to pieces. My book came out in 2001. And, and the Middle East was, was in turmoil. And I think my book was something that people could pick up and say, how did we get here? Because I looked at what had happened 100 years ago or a century before and how it had played through the 20th century. And so I think my book, you know, I was lucky with the timing. So, but you, were, you weren't consciously writing with one eye on the present, as they say. You were, or were you? No, but what I did do is I brought it up to the present because I always want to know how the story ends. And so when I talked about the, the carve-up of the present-day Middle East... I then said, and this is more or less what happened, you know, eventually a state was established in Israel, um, the Arab peoples, a lot of them turned against the West. I didn't go through the whole history of the modern world, but I gave people a sense that these were decisions made in 1919 and the years immediately afterwards that actually have relevance for today. So I want to come back to the global aspect of this book. You have a background in India. We, we were talking about that earlier, a year yeah. or so spent there doing research. You yeah. did a book on China. Yeah. So how did you take this massive global event that you're writing about and sort of parse out both the peculiarities of those parts of the world and the general. How did you, how did you balance that in the way you were thinking of the book? Well, one of the things I very much wanted to do was look at the non-European world because much of the work that had been done on the Paris Peace Conference looked at Europe. Sure. And the greatest part was probably on Germany because the Treaty of Versailles with Germany was such a contentious one. And I thought, you know, this is a war, this is the war itself was a global war and had global ramifications and I thought the peace was a global one and had global ramifications and I want to to put that in. And so an important section of the book was on Asia. And I looked at China, I looked at Japan, and I looked at, I looked at what happened in Africa, I looked at what happened in the Middle East, because I really was trying to, to make people aware that this war was something that affected many different parts of the world. But global history is so hard to do. I mean, you either need to, it seems to me, start with a general set of, of concepts that you're going to talk about, or you really do need to sort of become a semi-expert on each individual part of the world that you're writing about. Yes, it, I mean, it's not easy to do, um, but I thought it was worth trying. And I thought, you know, others will come after me, and indeed they have. And, and you know, they can write more about some of these places. I mean, Ares Manella, for example, right. wrote a lot about the non-European world. And, and I think, I, I mean, I don't think my book had an influence on him, but I think it, it was possible for people to do that. But I wanted also people to understand that these things often affected each other. I mean, the United States treated Japan in a certain way because it was thinking of domestic things at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, these things are, are interconnected. And, and there were times when I thought, you know, my brain hurts because I'm trying to link all these things together. But I think it was possible and because they were all discussed by the same people in Paris. Paris provided a very useful focus. So Paris is almost the sort of hub and then the 
specific cases are sort of the spokes coming off of the of that hub sort of i think so because and and i i had a big debate about whether i would try and follow the peace conference through as it developed day by day and then i realized that would be impossible because issues would come up and then not be talked about for three weeks and then come up again and so i ended up trying to do a balance and and this happens as you're writing a book you begin to develop a, a framework for it and what i did was was i did some chronology i mean i did the start of the peace conference and then i looked bit by bit at separate topics. Um, Germany was a major one, and I, I dealt with that. And then I dealt with the, the, the settlement in Central Europe, and then I dealt with other things. And then I had a sort of break where I did an interlude, and I said, well, the peace conference had reached this point. It was around the middle of February, I think, or March. I can't remember now. The peace conference had reached the point. Where are they now, and what have they decided? Because sometimes there was all this horse trading. So what was happening in the German peace was affecting what was happening elsewhere. But in the end, I did it by issue and by country. But every so often, I'd break off and say, here they are at this point, and here are the major issues. I think that was smart. There is a French book that covers it day by day. Something it's called Chronique d'une fausse paix, and it, it just doesn't work because you're just kind of going day to day. There's no there's no wider sense of what's happening. No, and if you go day by day, I mean, I once, I just to, to, for my own interest, but then I put it in the book, I thought, let me just look and see what Woodrow Wilson was dealing with on a particular day because his his records are pretty full. And something like 12 different subjects came up. And he had delegations from people. So he was having to think on one day, you know, for one half hour about Poland and then the next half hour about Germany. And then people would come in to see him from uh, the Czechs or the Slovaks. And so I thought, you know, that you have to give a sense of the pressures these, these, these peacemakers are under. But for a reader, you've got to make it clear that each issue was considered and, and had consequences. So you ha- I, the only way I could do it, I thought, was to do it by issue or by country. It is an incredible period of time like you said all these individuals who are coming some of them famous some of them maybe less well known in our time but when i was doing some research on this period the queen marie of romania yeah. uh, tasker bliss the american military yeah. representative these are fascinating people yeah. in a very literate era where they're leaving a lot of records behind and it, it yeah. lets us as historians reconstruct what yeah. they were doing yeah. how did you balance the really phenomenal human beings, and I want to talk about one you have a connection to in particular in a little bit, with the sort of wider historical structural patterns. In other words, how did you sort of assess how important the individuals are or how important the, the, the times are? Well, it's always difficult, and, and I think as historians, we're always trying to get the balance, particularly if we're looking at momentous decisions, because clearly people making those decisions are individuals. They have hates, they have fears, they have weaknesses, they have strengths. But they are creatures of their time. They have pressures on them. They have ideas that have been formed in their times. And I'm not sure we ever get the balance quite right. But I think the individual has to be in there because the, the key figures in Paris had an awful lot of power because they were heads of important countries or in some cases they were very persuasive or they had a particular um, role. And so I thought that you have to take the individual into account. I think that if the United States had sent a different president, the shape of the peace might have been a bit different. I think if France had had a different prime minister, right. things might have been a bit different. You know, So I really think the individuals matter, but you always have to keep in mind that they're, they're part of their times. This is a thing all historians deal with, are, you know, dealing yeah. with structure versus the contingency yeah. of the individual. Yeah. And I was trained to think almost exclusively about structure, yeah. but I think you're right. If Charles Evans Hughes had, had won a very close 1916 presidential election, or if Georges Clemenceau had been assassinated, you know, he, he, yeah. there is an assassination attempt yeah. against him that almost kills him. Yeah. You could very well imagine not just the peace treaty, but the rest of the 20th century playing out in a very different way than it plays out. Yeah, I think we've come to realize that. I mean, there was a a current in history, which I certainly was aware, you know, this is how I was educated partly, that we need to look at the great economic forces, the great social forces, the great demographic forces, and individuals don't matter. 
But, you know, can you really write the history of the 20th century without taking into account Stalin, Mao, Hitler, Wilson, Roosevelt, Wilson, mm-hmm. you know, these pe- Churchill, these people really made a difference. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are lots of times when individuals don't make a difference. And there are lots of things that happen. Social change happens without any one person directing it. But there are times when decisions, great momentous decisions, like whether or not you go to war, are in the hands of a very few people. Mm -hmm. So you need to know about them. And I don't know whether it's because we know more about them or what, but some of these figures just are larger than life. Georges Clemenceau is a larger-than-life kind of figure. He's just incredible to read about. He's extraordinary. I mean, you know, when he he was uh, this this mad anarchist tried to, to kill him, and fired a couple of shots at him, one of which he was going to carry the bullet with him till he died, but didn't kill him. And Clemenceau said, as he lay on his bed with, you know, in terrible pain, he said, that man's a disgrace. He was in the French army and he can't even shoot straight. <laughs> you know, it's a style, which is amazing. It's also Clemenceau who saw the 14 points and said God himself was content to give us 10. Oh, yeah. No, Clemenceau was, Clemenceau was very witty, but there's, there's a lovely side to him. You know, the, you can still go and see his house in Paris. Yep, that little apartment he has in the 16th. Yes, and yeah. he, had, he contains a Monet, because he and Monet were great friends, and uh-huh. there's a Monet hanging on the wall, or used to be. And the story is that he had at least two, and he wanted to give one to the Louvre, and he called the experts in the Louvre, and he said, which is the best one? And the expert said, that is. Clement said, okay, you take that one, I'll keep the other one. Hmm. You know, which is very Clemenceau. He was a man of great style, and you know, difficult, but charming, I think. I was impressed when I saw that apartment for the first time at how small it yeah. was. And yeah. it's obvious this man wasn't in politics to enrich himself. No. This was a man that had yeah. something was really driving him. Oh, yeah. And I think yeah. you're right. In order to understand the way this piece plays out, you have to know what that was that yeah. was driving him. Yeah. And I think the same is true of Woodrow Wilson. The same yeah. is true of Queen Marie. I mean, all of these figures who are, who are going through there. Oh, yeah. And they have their biases and their prejudices, you know. Right. I mean, they like or don't like each other. But there's an interesting thing that happens with Clemenceau, Lloyd George, and, and Wilson, all heads of their countries. They've all come through a very difficult war. They all have tremendous pressures on them. They spend a lot of time with each other. And they talk to each other, and they have formal meetings. I mean, they meet well over 100 times, I think, in those six months in Paris. And we have a fairly full record of those meetings, including my favorite is from the Italian translator, because the Italian or the interpreter, the Italian interpreter, used to go home and write down all the sort of chit-chat they did. And there's a moment where you know, they, they're standing there talking, having, I guess, a coffee before the meeting starts. And, and one says, you know, I had trouble sleeping last night. And another says, well, you know, I do sometimes. When, when do you have trouble sleeping? Well, says, I think, Wilson, when I feel I've made a mistake. Yes, says Clement, so I know what you mean. You know, and you get these. Mm-hmm. And they develop a fellow feeling because they have pressures on them like most of us will never understand. And I wanted to ask you about that, too, how you get to know these people, because reading someone's memoirs is very tricky. It's they're, yeah. they're sort of writing the story of themselves in a way. And yeah. some of these figures, David Lloyd George had his secretary and mistress Frances Stevenson there, yeah. whose diary I think is fantastically yeah. interesting. Yeah. How did you try to get as, as well-rounded a picture of these people as you could? I just read everything I could. Um, and the more you read, I think the more p- p- the picture you get of them. And Clemenceau's the trickiest, because before he died, he burned all his papers. Mm. But he had a very faithful military attaché, General Mordak, who was with him the whole time. And I read Mordak's memoirs. And I read everything I could get my hands on. Wilson, there's a very full record because he was with a group, uh, including his second wife and his son-in-law and his doctor. And he had people with him who would write down what he said when they were sitting around at dinner. And so I got a very good sense of Wilson, I think, just from his table conversation. And it told me something that he told very bad jokes. Hmm. You know, it does tell you something about a person. It's interesting. 
I think I came across that too one time. He told bad jokes and sort of expected the room to laugh. And yeah. it reminded me of George Marshall's statement that he told President Roosevelt, I'm not going to laugh at your jokes unless I find them funny. And yeah. he never laughed at one of the president's <laughs> jokes. And Wilson's yeah. also easy, I think, because so much of his papers became published later yeah. in the giant series that Arthur Link did and, yeah. and all of that. And Clemenceau's memoirs are really difficult. I mean, that's a man that his memoirs I don't particularly find all that useful. He's angry. Yeah. By the time he sits down to write them. Yeah. Well, Clemenceau wasn't someone, I think, who explored his inner feelings and emotions. Or if he did, he wasn't going to tell right. posterity about it. And so he is more difficult to get at. But I, you, you do your best. I mean, I think what we always, we, we know what we have to be careful of as historians, is not to read into people um, our own attitudes or, right. or, you know, things that are ahistorical. You know, we, we know certain things about Clemenceau. We can't guess about the rest. I mean, we, 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 we have to just go with what we have. Right. And these people are, are, are not only remarkable for the age they lived in, but they are witty. They yeah. are um, incredibly perceptive and yeah. incredibly literate, the references yeah. that they make. And yeah. so to get inside their minds through yeah. their writings is, is yeah. I find, sometimes a challenge. It's yeah. a, it is a different time period. Well, they'd been educated. Uh, they'd pretty, much, pretty much, I think all of them had read the Bible, even though Clemenceau was, was, was an atheist. But Lloyd George and Wilson certainly had been brought up in the Bible, and they were, I think, all acquainted with the classics, perhaps Lloyd George less because he had less of a formal education. But yeah, the frame of reference is one that, that I think is sometimes alien to us. I mean, they spoke very comfortably about classical figures or about biblical figures in a way that perhaps politicians don't as much today. And I think each of these figures has a side to them that is distasteful, but a side to them that is admirable, too. Yeah. Which is, makes them different from studying Mao or Stalin or some of no. the kind of mass murderers of the 20th century. No. But um, even Wilson, who I've come to really dislike, there's something about the idealism, yeah. his desire to shape the world yeah. and make it better, that, that you can see where it was attractive to people. No, I think Wilson is, is perhaps the most complex and tricky in a way. And, and you, one does, you know, you, I do find myself not liking much about him. But he had a vision. He had an ideal. He had something he wanted to do. And he was capable, although he tended to fall out with people, but he was capable of very affectionate human relationships. I think he was devoted to his first wife, devoted to his daughters, um, had very strong friendships. But then he would turn on people. You know, mm -hmm. that was, I think, the, le the less appealing side of him. He'd suddenly decide someone was a traitor. or you know, Anyone who disagreed with him, he tended not to like. Yeah. Can we talk about the uh, the other one of the big three? Yes. So you are related. You are the great-granddaughter of David Lloyd George? I'm the great-granddaughter of David Lloyd George. I never knew him. I was born a year before he died. Of course, I knew my grandmother, who was his daughter, and I knew my great-aunt, who was another daughter, and my great-uncles. And so I heard a lot about him. And of course, what I tended to hear is that he was always right and others <laughs> were wrong. You know, I heard a very particular view, and, and um, I grew up not really knowing much about him. I grew up in Canada, which was actually, I think, a good thing, because if I'd been growing up in England, I might have been identified as a member of the Lloyd George family, and I wasn't. In Canada, I was just who I was. And I think that was, 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 gave, me, gave me a sort of freedom. And I didn't want, when I wrote the book, to be seen as someone who was writing it out of any sort of family feeling. And in fact, I started out in, in, in my research being quite critical of Lloyd George because there are many critics of Lloyd George. He was seen by John Maynard Keynes, for example, as extremely devious with no moral core whatsoever. And it was only, honestly, I can say this, was only doing my research and reading through his papers and reading through other things and reading through the transcripts of what occurred at the peace conference that I came to the conclusion that, yes, he did have moral principles, but he was also a politician. He was someone who negotiated. He understood that you had to try and get compromise. And he had a great deal of perception. And I came to, funnily enough, admire him more by the end than I had at the beginning. 
But I didn't tell my publisher I was related because I thought I did. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want anything my publisher said to sort of, you know, play on the Lloyd George side. And and when my publisher found out, it was an English publisher initially, they said, you might have told us. (laughs) But I didn't want to do it. I wanted to be judged on my own merits. And it also lets you come into it. With fresh eyes, and, no. and as you did, and, no. and see what you what you think. Yeah, I'd like uh, to think I was an historian looking at a historical figure, and the fact that I was related to him meant very little to me. That's interesting. Uh, Lloyd George, to me, is one of the more fascinating figures. Yeah. He is a politician, as you said, par excellence. Yeah. I mean, he understands that sometimes this has to be done behind the scenes, sometimes it has to be done in a sort of nasty way, yeah. but politics is nasty business. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, I mean, his career was an extraordinary one because he came from a, a very humble family, a Welsh family. He was apprenticed to a solicitor when he was a little boy. He didn't go to university. And yet in those days, most of the people who were in leading political positions in the British Isles were from the upper classes. Mm-hmm. And you had to have money. MPs weren't paid. And you, most of them had gone to university. And so he came from a very different background, which I really admired. I mean, he made his own way in the world. And he was also very experienced by the time he became prime minister. He'd held a number of very important government offices. And he'd become known for his ability to to bring people together. I mean, there was a situation before the First World War when ship workers, I think it was, were going on strike against their conditions. And he managed to get the owners of the shipyards and the the representatives of the workers around a table together and hammer out a deal. And, you know, I I came to admire that sort of capacity more and more. He also had that a very contentious relationship with the army from the Boer War, no. but yet I think he and Clemenceau, Clemenceau is the one who said war is too important a business to be left to generals, yeah. but it could equally have been Lloyd George. I mean, he yeah. understood that it's yeah. not an army that fights a war, it's a nation that fights a war. Yeah. And he understood the importance of, of you know directing the generals so that their strategy was fulfilling the needs of the nation. Yeah. And he, you know, some have said that perhaps he was too weak with Haig, who was the, 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 the chief British um, commander, that he let him go on trying those, those massive frontal attacks on the Western Front. And he did, I think, look for other ways to break through the deadlock. I mean, he was very interested in the Eastern part of, mm-hmm. of, of the fighting. And he also had, I think, a considerable struggle with the Navy because the Navy didn't want to do convoys. I mean, the Allies were losing a lot of shipping to German submarine warfare, and it was really compromising the ability of Britain to fight on. And Lloyd George pushed against the will of a lot of the Admiralty the idea of convoys. And the admirals didn't want to do it. They said, oh, the freighters won't know how to keep in convoy, and that's not what we should be doing. That's not what we're trained to do. As soon as they introduced convoys, the the losses of shipping went down. Hmm. So as you were putting this book together, did you have a kind of aha eureka moment when you kind of said, okay, this is what I think the book is going to look like? Or did, did that come to you early on in the process? I think I worked out, I, once I'd written the first four or five chapters, I think in the end I had um, 31 chapters. And once I'd written, you know, perhaps the first third, I sort of knew where it was going. And I thought the way I'm doing it is working, at least for me. And I gave it to I think what I always find when I write a book, I always have a reader in mind. And the readers I had in mind were my family, particularly my parents, because my parents were both well-educated, read a lot, interested in a lot, but neither of them were historians. My father was a doctor and my mother was a scientist. And so I thought, I want them to pick it up and read it and think, oh, this is interesting. So as I wrote it, I was thinking, and I always do this, I'm always thinking of, of some type of reader as I'm writing my books. And so as I wrote it, I thought, you know, that will they like it? And, and they did, and they found it interesting. And that encouraged me. That's but great. I had no idea. I mean, when I wrote it, I, I didn't realize I was being, one of the early reviews said that I was boldly revisionist. And I don't, I didn't think I was doing it at the time, but I think I just 
as best I could, I took the evidence I saw, and I, you know, the the standard view of the Paris Peace Conference was a total failure. And increasingly, I thought, as I went through it and read what was happening, I thought, you know, they were dealing with, in some cases, almost insurmountable problems, you know, things that are insolvable, difficult, or very difficult to solve. And they weren't as powerful as you might think, because their, their military strength was diminishing day by day as, you know, the armies and navies were being demobilized and people wanted to go home. And so I thought, you know, when I think of what they were dealing with, what would I have done? I think it's a question we should often ask. What would I have done? Could I have done better? And I thought, you know, dealing with what they were dealing, I don't know. And I also looked at the very standard argument that what was done to Germany led to the rise of Hitler and led directly to the Second World War. And I came to think, no, that's just too simple. You know, that's 20 years between 1919 and 1939. So what was everyone doing in those 20 years? You know, you can't just say that it leads to it. So without meaning to, I think, I wrote a book which I said, look, the Paris Peace Conference is not as dark as it's been portrayed. They were dealing with dreadful problems. Making peace is never easy. And so let's try and understand it. I, I wasn't trying to let anyone off the hook, I hope, but I was trying to understand why they did what they did and what the limits on what they could do were. Well, I think that's one of the things about the book that I liked so much when I first read it, that you take a subject that you think you know something about, and here a talented historian says, well, wait a minute, the, the conventional wisdom we have about this needs to be challenged. We need to think about yeah. some of these things in a different way. Yeah. And I, those are books, I think, that are really, really valuable. Well, I think what we have to do as historians and is just follow the evidence and let it lead us into making our conclusions. I mean, I think if you start out writing a book with a very clear theory, you're going to run into trouble as soon as you start looking at the, at the sources. And so I think what I did, I mean, I spent a lot of time on this book. I mean, probably 10 or 15 years, even more, because you know, it was something I was doing. And I simply, whatever I wrote was, was I thought, based on the evidence. But that doesn't mean that I was right. But I just formed my conclusions by looking a lot and reading a lot and doing as much as I could. Doing what a professional historian does. Yeah. So the, 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 the format of the book is, as you just mentioned, many, many, many chapters, several dozen chapters. Yeah. Do you think that was driven in part by the fact that you were sort of jumping around the world? Or were yeah. you doing that with your reader in mind? What, what led you to that? I usually try to keep it to about eight or nine chapters, but I'm beginning to think maybe I need to follow something more yeah. the way you're doing this. Well, I thought I need each chapter to be on a subject. And sometimes I divided chapters, and I was going to have one chapter on the Ottoman Empire, and then I realized that was impossible. So I had one on the Turkish side, and then I had one on the Arab territories. So you, you, you change your, your structure a bit as you go along. But I simply thought if someone wants to pick up this book and ask what happened to Bulgaria at the end of the First World War, they can find it. What happened to China at the end of the First World War, they can find it. Um, funnily, I mean, what I wrote was much longer than, than what you see in the book now. And I wrote a lot more about the Middle East, and my publisher at the time said, you know, I don't think the Middle East is that interesting. <laughs> I know, I know. It was two years, two years before the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Um, these days, I probably would have kept some of that in. These days, you could have done a whole separate book on that. I could have done. Yeah. Without, without a problem. Yeah. So the, the sand is beginning to run out of our hourglass, so I want to ask you uh, to tell us just a little bit about what you're working on now. Okay. We were just together at the Army Heritage and Education Center doing, going through some files and documents, yeah. so... Well, I'm working on a book which I sort of put off doing for a long time because when I finished this book on the Paris Peace Conference, I got publishers saying, I found myself in a lovely position of publishers saying, what would you like to do next? Which you know, I hadn't had before I wrote the book. And a couple of publishers said, you know, what you should really think of as doing is the World War II conferences. And I thought, I don't want to become the conference lady. You know, I don't want to just do <laughs> conferences. And 
in any case, I was just taking on a new job and I thought it's too big a project when I'm taking on a new job. And so I did a book on Nixon's trip to China, which I thought was an interesting moment. And I thought was smallish and a manageable subject. But I did then sign a book for the uh, World War II conferences, which I put off because I was then asked to do a book on the origins of the First World War, which was enormously tempting, and I f followed the, that temptation. So I'm now finally coming back after, um, what, nearly 15 or 16 years to the World War II conferences. I think I know more than I did when I originally agreed to do it. I think I may do it in a slightly different way, but I'm now very interested in it. So my next big book is going to be on that. Okay, and then the last question I usually ask folks, last two questions I, I've asked uh, guests here, when you go on a flight, as you're going to go tomorrow, when you're traveling, what kind of books do you take with you? What do you like to read? It really depends on my mood. Um, I usually take books now on, on a Kindle or equivalent. And so I've got detective stories. I read far too many mysteries. Um, who's I'm your part... favorite mystery writer right now? Um, who's my favorite? There's, there's a very good one who writes about Northern Ireland called um, Aidan McKinty. And he writes wonderful atmosphere. But I think I probably won't read that. I'm, I'm reading, what am I reading at the moment? I've just finished a book on strategy, which was quite interesting, a series of essays. And so I may go for either history or was biography. Is the John Gaddis book on grand strategy? No, it's yeah. not. It's, it's by Hugh Strawn. It's a series oh, sure. of essays. And yeah. it's, it's, um, it was enjoyable. But I think I now want something that's possibly more biography. And I've, I've just downloaded... Uh, a writer I have, I have n not read called Elizabeth Bowen, who, wrote, who was writing in the 1940s and 1950s, an Anglo-Irish writer. And so I think I'm probably going to read her. But I, yeah, I always have something to read. And do you have a fantasy book in your head that you want to write in, in an ideal world, ideal circumstances? That is there another project in your brain that you want to do or not yet? Not yet. Um, I think the, the World War II conference is a, a, a big mountain to get over. And by that point, you know, who knows what I'll be thinking. It's always kind of fun. You never know when that moment's going to come where the, yeah. then the next book idea comes, something you see in the archives or, or hear along the road. Yeah, no, sometimes I'm, I mean, I, I, I did a book on British women in India and it came to me when I was sitting in a concert listening to a very nice piece of classical music. And for some reason, this suddenly floated into my mind. Who knows how our minds work? But yeah. um, I'm hoping something will continue to float up out of the murk. And what is the advice you give to young writers when they come to you and ask you for the key to success or the key to writing? What do you tell them? Well, find your style. Find the writers you really admire and try and work out why you admire them. Um, I tend to admire writers who write very plainly and simply, people like George Orwell or P.J. Woodhouse, the English com mm -hmm. comic writer who writes a beautiful prose. Make it clear. Have someone you want you in mind. Um, do what you can do. Don't 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 try and be too flowery. Don't try and dress something up if, if it's not worth dressing up. What I do, and everyone has different styles of writing, I organize my material very, very tightly before I start writing. And when I write, in the end, I, I, I revise as I go along, and by the time a chapter's finished, it's finished. But everyone has a different style. Some people do multiple revisions. You have to find your own way. But don't think it's easy. You know, it's a slog, yeah. and you have to do it every day. And don't think you can just drift around getting inspiration. You just sit there, and something will happen. Something won't, but you just keep slogging away. I always give people the H.L. Mencken advice that writing is easy. You just stare at blank pieces of paper and wait for drops of blood to appear on your forehead. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I've talked to people who said, I thought I'd go and sit on an island and get inspiration. I said, no. Yeah, you sit at your kitchen way. table and just sit there. Well, we are unfortunately out of sand in the hourglass, which means this uh, interview is done. But Margaret, I really want to thank you for coming to Carlisle. I want to thank you for agreeing to be on A Better Peace. And we hope we'll see you again here in, in Carlisle. Well, thank you so much for a lovely trip and a lovely conversation. Thanks. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.